the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. exactly where we're live again. We started a little late so we could let Mark Rashtuni finish his excellent message on impious questions asked of Jesus. Uh, that was just an excellent message, I thought. I hope you had a chance to get in on it yourselves. So we'll wait for uh, Ground Control to go ahead. Hi, Emily. Ground Control will get us all connected. <laughs> I love the new interface to show pictures of people smiling at me as opposed to scowling. That's a good start. Uh, we'll see how that we end up at the end of this uh, Q&A. Uh, and we had mm, four questions pop in online ahead of time, which we'll take first once we get a notice from Ground Control that uh, they have us connected to the Chalcedon website. Remember, you can watch the, uh, and participate in these Q&As directly on Facebook Live, uh, but you are also able to uh, watch it at least um, on calcedon.edu, the website. And then later on, the recorded forms will be available for people to review. In fact, I'm going to appeal to an earlier <laughs> one of my Q&As for an answer to one of the questions that came in here, since um, I'm not able to reinvent the wheel as much as I would might like to do, uh, but we're not going to go ahead and do that. Also a reminder for everyone that the Calcedon Book of the Month Club uh, broadcast for August 6th, that's uh, Monday after this one, is on The Mythology of Science by Dr. R.J. Rushduni. I'll be hosting this with Andrea Schwartz, and we'll be discussing uh, this very important book by Dr. Rushduni. It was written way back in 1965, and yet, astonishingly, it is not dated, even though the science of the era has become dated. So, ah, Curtis, good to have you here with us, too. And Bill. So, we pick up some of the folks that uh, finished up with Mark, and they switch over to my channel. And I do the uh, the cleanup afterward where necessary. <laughs> yeah, there's some uh, uh, things I could say about this. Uh, let me see. Any word from ground control whether we are connected yet? Once we are, I can start in earnest. And if not, then I'm going to be um, hydrating a little bit. We have some good questions come in online, by the way. Hey, Becky, blessings to you. Good to have you with us today. I trust uh, Joe is doing well. I still don't have a word from Ground Control as to whether we're connected yet, so uh, they're busy getting us connected to the calcedon.edu site. Uh, there are protocols to follow that allow them to take this feed from Facebook and then insert it directly into the calcedon.edu so folks who don't get Facebook or not sign up for Facebook, and apparently that number is dropping recently, as we all know, uh, they can at least catch this Q&A uh, pretty uh, live on calcedon.edu, our website. If you want to ask questions in advance, send them by email to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. And then those come in, and I print them out afterward, 
um, a half hour before showtime, and uh, and I'm, I'll take those questions in advance. And so, Priscilla, good to have you with us. <laughs> Still waiting on ground control. Ground control to Major Tom. How are we doing ground control? And I bet you, you know, they're busy trying to get that connected, and as soon as they have it, they're going to alert us that we can proceed. And if not, well, we might have to proceed without ground control. There comes a point in time when I guess just going to say we're going to go for it. I get a thumbs up. Yeah, see my comment. Well, can't see your comment. <laughs> All righty. Calcine broadcasts are always edifying. Well, I like that comment. But uh, where is a comment from ground control? I don't see see one. It's telling me to see a comment that I cannot see. Um, let's try yes/no question. Are we ready to go? Yes or no? I'll go with that. Yeah, you know, Bill tells us that these are always edifying. They're edifying once they get started. <laughs> Uh, they're logistical nightmares until that point in time. No, not really. It's just that uh, we want to make sure that folks who only tune in on our website are able to see this broadcast and that we don't want them to miss anything. Uh, and I believe that's the... It's a protocol. It's just to think more highly of others than ourselves. So I don't really want to proceed until I know for a fact that we are cooking. And I don't see a comment from Calcedon Foundation... Uh, that is being referenced there, and there's no more underneath it. So I'm kind of at a loss, ground control. Should I proceed? Ground control. Hi, Diane. Yes, it's always good to have you. I've been a faithful listener to these, and I really appreciate uh, your support. And in fact, for everyone who is supporting Calcedon through these difficult times, uh, we are very, very grateful. Uh, and uh, we look forward to uh, continuing to uh, serve your needs into this uh, new century. And we're about 20% uh, into it at this point. Well, for lack of anything better, I'm going to go ahead and proceed, and hopefully we get caught up on this on the ground control side. I myself will not be at the California Reconstructionist Meetup in a couple of weeks. So um, Mark will be there, and um, Steve Macias will be there. And I my apologies if I mispronounced his last name. Uh, and I believe Andrea is going to be there since it's uh, close to home. So uh, I wish I were, but it does not look like that's going to work out. However, I will be up in Pennsylvania uh, in October 5, 6, and 7 for that particular group, uh, which is a conference on the future of Christendom. So at the moment, that's what I have planned. By the way, just for reference, it looks like I will have no Q&As in October. The first Sunday I will be in Pennsylvania, the next three I will be in Mexico, and not in a position to broadcast. So put that on your calendar for that. Ah, with you from the UK. Glad to have folks. Uh, it's a very different hour over there, so I believe it's late in the day for you, if I'm not mistaken. So appreciate having you with us, John Michael. All right, I'm going to proceed with the questions, since I cannot tell what's going on with, with ground control. Uh, and these arose out of Andreas Schwartz's uh, Institutes of Biblical Law classes. First question. The early church would not violate conscience by saying Caesar is Lord. 
and there were ramifications. Today, people are fired from positions such as teaching, etc., that they have held faithfully and competently simply because they will not call males females and vice versa, and refuse to accept these people's misguided gender identification. Are we dealing with comparable issues of faith here and the need to stand firm? Could this be a new martyrdom issue? In other words, is uh, what the state is demanding of a Christian on the same level as demanding that we renounce Christ and declare that Caesar is Lord over Christ. And in effect, what we have to look at is say, all right, is this a manifestation of Caesar asserting lordship over Christ? Uh, and in this instance, it's over language. Now, this is always the first point of subversion, is the subversion of the language, the ability to communicate one with another. And Rushduni deals with this in his article, The Strategy of Subversion at which point he uh, goes um, long, if you will, uh, and, and explains that the, the core game is to start to tamper with the language. George Orwell did a great service to us explaining the importance of maintaining uh, language, holding the line, uh, not moving these ancient uh, landmarks. Now, that's not to say that languages don't uh, evolve in the sense that they grow to fit new needs. Uh, there comes a point where using old terms don't fit for new concepts, particularly in the sciences. So uh, once that happens, then you need to have a new term. And so neologism is where it's a brand new term being invented. Uh, those things then fit the need of the populace and they're adopted by, uh, by and large. Now this is a different whole story when you're talking about gender. Uh, at this point, they're asking us to say, if God says he created the male and female, uh, we need to set that on the back burner at best, um, and perhaps toss it out entirely, and uh, establish a spectrum instead of a, a polarity between the genders. Uh, so they are, in fact, telling us that we must, in our official language, uh, demolish uh, the distinction that God made. What God had made separate, they are now smearing together. It is confusion. See, the word confusion is to fuse things together with one another. That's the actual sense of the word. And it's, uh, that word is used in the Old Testament and the law specifically to, to say that we're merging things that God has to kept separate. Uh, and that is not legitimate in this instance. So, is it worth losing your job over? One, is it worth losing your life over is the other point. Because, of course, the martyrdom issue was not merely that they could not have a job, they could not earn money anymore. Uh, they literally were on the line for their lives. Uh, whether they were willing to put the incense on the censer and say Caesar is the true Lord and not Christ. And so in essence, uh, when the government is asking us to violate liberty of conscience, we have to realize how important that liberty is. In fact, it is the most important of all property, the property that we have in our own conscience. I was just um, mindful of a book I picked up recently. I'm sorry, it's backwards in your feed. It's liberty of Conscience, the History of a Puritan Idea by L. John Van Til. Boy, these Van Tills get around. And in it, he traces out the importance of this concept, why it was uh, needful for people to take a stand for their liberty of conscience, that the conscience could not be coerced. Now, this is the interesting word, because when people are saying you need to use these new pronouns, uh, there is an element of coercion, and the coercion is to attain conformity. We want everyone to conform to this new standard, and the new standard is to displace the old standards because the old standards are false. That's the reason they're being, there's only reason to get rid of a standard is because you're declaring the new one, the new truth, and, and it's to replace this old falsehood. The old truth is now a new falsehood. And if we don't hold the line, then basically everything's going to encroach until there's nothing left of the faith. 
So where you draw that line is going to be a pretty important thing. And if you give up your liberty of conscience on one, you've yielded the entire principle. Uh, at what point do you finally say, okay, now they got my attention? When it was easy to deal with them earlier on, because their mission, it's just like a two-year-old who's testing the boundaries of the parent's authority. They'll keep pushing, pushing, and testing the boundaries. And, and every time you yield, that's more territory for the two-year-old to say, mine, 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 not yours. And by the same token, the uh, state is going to continue to encroach, encroach, encroach on your liberty of conscience. So they say you must do this in your business. You must not do this in your business. Uh, and anything that would normally be under the rubric of your liberty of conscience to believe as you see fit, that's going to be constrained and limited. And once you allow them to start doing this, uh, then that process uh, snowballs. So I think we need to hold the line earlier rather than later uh, because we become hypocritical. You know, we might simply say, well, there was someone else who got affected by that, so I'm not going to bother uh, since it only affected these guys. Maybe it affected the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or something, and, uh, or Seventh-day Adventists, and I'm not going to worry about them being persecuted. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, things shift, and now we're under the, uh, the get, get the heat applied to us. And then all of a sudden, we want, we're interested in the fighting but not only someone else is being affected. People have criticized Dr. Rashduni because he would go to trials uh, and support the defense of some of these uh, groups that we would consider Christian cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, because he knew if the state could apply pressure to them and gain a precedent, it would then be in turn used against the Christians. So he says, we go out there and fight the battle at that, that point. We don't just let the Mormon or the Seventh-day Adventist or the... Uh, um, Jehovah's Witness uh, sink under the weight of a, of a statist um, abuses uh, because it suits us to see them sink because you know, and they're not Christians. All of a sudden now, the state has the authority and has the power and has got the practice at what it takes to knock down a Christian uh, because we shrugged and looked the other way when a, 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 another group has taken a hit for their liberties. So liberty of conscience is very, very important, and we need to realize that the battlefield, the enemy thinks very long-term. They're strategic in their approach. Christians are not. Christians tend to be very, very tactical, in fact, very knee-jerk reactionary as opposed to long-term thinking. Rashtuni exhibited long-term thinking and saying, "We're going. I'm going to go out and help these guys, even though we are mortal enemies on the theological battlefield, but if I don't stop the battle here, I'm going to have a much stronger enemy at my gates. So we go ahead and we... We, we, we throw in. And so is this going to be another martyrdom issue? It depends how hard the enemy is going to push. But I think they're going to push hard. I think the state wants to go ahead and control this. Uh, it, it happened first in Canada. And who was the first guy out of the gate to confront them was a person that we would not put in our camp, Jordan Peterson, uh, who has a very different notion of Christianity than we do by, by a long shot. So, uh, and then he makes a name for himself in being the guy willing to toe the line, when in fact some of the Christians should be the ones to be towing the line. Now, he's at the ground zero, of course, because it's happening at the university level, and there are very few Christians teaching at universities, and those who don't do may not be tenured and are unwilling to take the hit. So, again, there's a matter of cowardice versus practicality. But I do believe it could become and probably is becoming a new martyrdom issue, because if we uh, yield ground here, we're going to be very, very badly suited to protect ground later, because we've already 
shown our true colors, which is convenience trumps principle. Second question, please comment on the practical application of building bridges culturally without compromising the substance of the Christian faith. I think that's an interesting thing because throughout time we've had different approaches to how to build bridges, particularly uh, to uh, the, the unbelievers, the mission field. I, I know that Rushduni was very much taken with the General William Booth's work and features it in his book in his service. So if you don't have a copy of that book, yes, thank you, Bill, for that comment. If you don't have a copy of that book in his service, it's a good way uh, to understand how to build bridges. Other ways that the bridges are being built, aside from these particular outreaches, uh, are when in the early church, Christians created Christian courts, church courts, that were provided much better justice, quality justice, just true justice, as opposed to procedural um, nonsense and kangaroo courts uh, and bribery that marked you know, the Roman courts. So the Romans then would go to the Christians to have their cases adjudicated. So if you provide services, and again, the service component is very significant because it's here in his service, the title of Rashtuni's book. It's in what Booth was doing, Soup, Soap, and Salvation. He made sure that the soup and the soap was the bridge to the salvation. So he packaged it all together saying, you, you, you are a whole person. We're going to deal with the whole person. He's hungry and he's dirty and he needs the gospel. And we're going to deal with all three. An interesting way. Thank you, uh, Ground Control. That's, uh, if you don't have that book and you can't afford the book, you can click on that link and you can... Um, well, in this particular case, this link, I think, is to buy it, but I believe the entirety of the book is also available uh, online to read uh, for free. So it's, it's important to have that book available. So the building of the bridge uh, versus the burning of the bridge is an important element in uh, going to the other side. Uh, I, when I've gone to various conferences, and Ground Control can confirm this, we were in um, New York at the SUNY, uh, State University of New York at a conference, and I actually had gone, so, so, and these speakers were opposed to the quote-unquote Christian right, which they were demonizing. And in several cases, I actually uh, walked up after the particular lecture by the anti-theonomist, if you will, the anti-reconstructionist, and uh, engaged them in a brief discussion. And in fact, I know um, my ground control fellow also did the same thing with folks like Chip Burlett and Frederick Carlson, and I was doing it with um, uh, some of the other speakers there. Uh, who I thought had, um, there was some possibility of reaching across the, what I call the chasm of incomprehension, where each side could not understand the other. And I tried to bridge it by literally speaking with them and talking to them. Didn't always work, but we certainly uh, don't lack for trying. You know, at, at least you can look yourself in the mirror afterward and said, I tried to reach out uh, and to put the truth of the gospel out there uh, to explain our position so that, in this case, uh, wild misrepresentations weren't circulating more and more, as they tend to be. You know, it's very irresponsible to either side, but it's very useful to them. If you want to demonize someone, don't let the facts get in the way. However, we've been done a very, very good job, in my opinion, of uh, correcting the record and uh, making them more aware of the truth of the situation, which is kind of, in a way, gets under their skin, because if we were purely a political group, then they could see everything that we're doing. But if everything we're doing is geared toward God's invisible spirit working in the hearts and minds of the people, then there's very little they can do to control that and stop it because God is inexorable in all his actions. Question three of the four. There seem to be two basic ways to deal with an ungodly environment. Leave in order to avoid being soiled by the perversion 
or remain and exert a godly influence? What is the best way to determine which course of action to take? Okay, so this could be a trick question. I, don't, I know it's not, but let's assume that someone wanted me to say, well, we stay and fight, and they're going to turn around and say, well, then why are you, you should put our kids in public schools? And at this point, I realized uh, I needed to get some more information before answering the question because are we talking about kids or are we talking about adults? Uh, if we're talking about the children in the public schools, then the answer is they don't belong there, and you forfeited, uh, and, and and you've ruined. You're <laughs> turning them over to Molech, as Dr. Restrini had been saying for 50 years, half a century of warning us of what the implications are of our dereliction in respect to education. So, uh, setting aside that example, uh, to come out of them, we're talking about adults. We're talking about adults possessed of a conscience and an awareness of what Scripture requires and how they are to walk. Okay, so now that we have that, let's explain. There are the two options. There are the times when you say, you know, come out of uh, Babylon, uh, don't participate in her uh, sins and her abominations, etc., etc. There comes a time when you do have a separation. But more often than not, there is a counterflow in Scripture, and it's represented in several passages. Uh, for example, in Ecclesiastes 10.5, and I'll go to 10.4 right after, he says, There's an evil which I have seen under the sun, as an error which proceedeth from a ruler. In other words, some fallacy, some errors, some abomination, some terrible thing is being inflicted by the rulers. Uh, and this is something that happens under the sun. Without reference to God, we see exactly this, that the powers that be start to say, we want this, we want that, we're going to require that. And this, of course, is folly, it's error, it is uh, sin. But the verse right before it, Ecclesiastes 10.4, informs us, If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offenses. So there comes a point, if we're dealing with great offenses, that your spirit of working under this, behind the scenes, quietly doing the work, occupying till Christ comes, right, as we learn from Luke 19, uh, that has its part to play. There's a, um, a pacifying effect in it. Uh, and if it's done by and large by Christians, uh, that has influence, if you will, on the ruler. In fact, this is a stipulated further over here in Proverbs. You're probably all more familiar with the Proverbs passage, 25.15. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. So, so long as you have an opportunity, one, to exhibit um, soft answers and long-suffering, persuading the prince, being at him again and again, but with respectful, honoring him, but pointing out that the error of the ways, uh, you will eventually break that down. It will even, a soft answer breaks hard bone, right? So it can happen. Now, what has to happen for us to say, we're fleeing the scene and we're going to go to New Zealand or who knows what the mission is, because whatever it's going to be, believe me, the grass is not greener on the other side, the grass is greener where you water it. And so if we decide we're going to go to the grass on the other side, make sure, in fact, that this is the blessing that you think it is. <laughs> I know so many stories from personal experience, that, uh, testimonies that people say, I, I made the big move, and everything that was promised there at the other side fell apart, and I was worse off there than I was in the first place. So, frying pan to the fire, not the best of transitions to be making. Uh, so... And that's always the old saying, go with the devil you know. You have a bad situation here, you can say, okay, I'm going to go to a better situation and solve this problem. Sometimes that works out great. When people cross the Atlantic westward and to found a new nation and carve it out of the wilderness with Christian faith and uh, integrity, uh, that was a great start. And, of course, they probably would have been mortified to hear what 
we've done with it in the meantime. It was on a wonderful autopilot, and uh, it only gets you so far if you don't tow the line, which kind of ties in with the previous question. When are we going to uh, protect and preserve the ancient landmarks uh, as opposed to letting them go and then wonder why there's so little territory left for the kingdom of God? It's become a ghetto, a little teeny ghetto, and uh, that's all they're going to allow us eventually. So, uh, and that's the whole point. And the question it says, or remain and exert a godly influence. That's the key. A lot of people just remain, but they're not exerting godly influence. And if there's no point, uh, a pivot point or an anchor point, uh, fulcrum, where you can uh, exert any godly influence, then maybe we need to rethink it. If every single angle except prayer is gone, then there's going to be a point in time when you say, I cannot, for the sake of my family, uh, drag them through the same muck as myself. If you're a single man doing something, or a single woman, you have some interesting uh, freedom in the gospel, as laid out in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians 7. You know, the single guys, they, they have certain, because they don't have certain other things on their back, obligations, familial obligations, uh, they have some liberties and freedoms that other people don't. And it puts them in a better position to make these decisions for themselves, uh, and perhaps be uh, able warriors in these fights. How do you determine it? I guess the, that's the big question. That's a judgment call. This is a matter where we, again, pray to, as James says, if you pray for wisdom, God will give it. And so here this instance, do we stick it out or we do we change? Do we stay here on this side of the Atlantic or move? Do we stay here on this side of the country or do we go west, young man, as uh, we were uh, told to do? Sometimes it was California or bust, and you made it to California, great. It was bust, then your graves were in the wilderness between here and there, somewhere east of the Rockies. So, tough calls all around the boat. Rush Dooney made this uh, point when he was in his commentary in Genesis, and an important one. Uh, he was dealing with Lot in Sodom, and he said, Lot had nothing but bad options in front of them. Not a single choice was good. So, he says, we have to understand that sometimes we are not going to be in that same boat. Not None of the options in front of us are going to be good. Uh, they're going to be different levels of bad. And we have to acknowledge that and then work our way through, understanding that there's a limit to what can be achieved. So, All right, I think we're ready for the final question. Oh, sorry, there's actually two more questions. And, I'm, and the fourth question I'm actually going to put off insofar as I've already answered it once before in an earlier Q&A. It was this, in your next Q&A session, will you share some insight into Joseph's relationship with Jesus? Are there insights with regard to headship which we may glean from the father of a perfect child? Uh, well, of course, Joseph would be the only one who would know what that was like to have the, be the father of a perfect child. And he later found out, I believe, uh, what it was like to have the per, uh, be the father of imperfect children, too, uh, with Jesus' brothers. Uh, so uh, we dealt with this in terms of Christ being a technon like his father, which more than just a carpenter, it is literally a, um, a full-sized craftsman. A mason would be a stronger term. Uh, and some of the um, history indicative that uh, Christ even went with Joseph uh, far afield from Galilee in order to uh, get work and train and, and, and together and get capital due to the depression that was occurring at the time. So there's interesting historical insights in this, and I have um, lost track of the source that I used for this when I first asked this question. So I'm going to refer us back to a previous Q&A, and I can probably dig up which one it is since I keep all the questions, and I'll find out which date they were for, and then we'll post that, and then this particular questioner um, can go ahead and get that uh, watch to that Q&A and get the answer. All right, then the final question. 
that came in online. We get these five first and then we'll take the live ones, which I see have been accumulating on me, <laughs> as they always do every week. Also, the analogy of military hierarchy as an example of headship and family structure has been used to explain Ephesians 5. Would you say this is a good reflection of that text? Well, I, ref I uh, reviewed, I reviewed uh, that passage, Ephesians 5, and I don't see any reference to a military motif in it. We don't encounter the military motif until the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Um, and there it's introduced to something new in a fight with the demons and with the devil and with sin. Uh, so it's a whole different ball game when uh, we have opportunity to bring in a military motif, uh, and that's why I believe it is alien to the description of the family in Ephesians 5. Moreover, the family existed before there was cause for war. It was a pre-fall entity, the family, Adam and Eve. And so then to bring in distinctives that are post-fall, which is namely fighting, uh, conflict, strife, war, uh, battle, is important. Uh, to realize that the family existed without it and will exist without it again. So to what extent is the family structured in a military sense today? I think the closest anything anyone has ever had to that is the passage in the Psalms about uh, the man who's blessed, blessed by having a full quiver. And the notion of a quiver is his arrows, right? Uh, the arrows in the full quiver. And, and so each of them, therefore, is a metaphor, an analogy, and a uh, simile, if you will, comparing each of the sons that he has to an arrow in a quiver, available um, presumably for military actions or victory, victory into the future. So, uh, but is that the way the family is structured? Uh, it's not really the father. Or, uh, as a general over uh, privates, it's rather the father having something in his quiver, uh, which are inanimate arrows. And so the picture is not a, a perfect picture, if you will, of using the military analogy in the family in terms of headship. It's not so far much that the um, father is the head of the uh, each of the arrows. Rather, he's the one who's going to go ahead and uh, send them on their way, if you will, so be careful with analogies. Analogies are only good insofar as that they uh, tie you closely to the thing that's being analogized. And there's always a point of difference between the reality and the analogy. Um, and that's why we always talk about bad analogies. Technically, every single analogy is a bad analogy um, unless God himself makes it. And even then, uh, we have to be aware of the limitations. You know, God compares himself to all sorts of things, like a... Um, a hen gathering chicks. Now, he's got a chicken. No. Is that a good analogy? Well, insofar as the action of gathering, it's, uh, it's young, it's, it's, that's true. Uh, being compared to a lion, compared to a lamb, to a fountain, to a strong tower. All these different things um, are part and, and, and kind of illuminate and illustrate part of what God's character and nature is like. But they all fall short because God is infinite in all his respects and unlimited, and a chicken is quite limited as is a lamb and a, and a lion. So I think that solves that question reasonably well. Let's go scroll up and see what questions have popped up. Thank you for the heads up. Well, uh, I could already answer that one. In James 2, 12 and 13, we're told that mercy triumphs over judgment. Can you discuss this for those who may see this as a contradiction? Let's get the exact quote here.
Well, in this instance, of course, so, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Uh, so in this instance, uh, I would point you to Rush Dooney's uh, commentary on James. He did a commentary on James, uh, Hebrew, and Jude. Hebrews, Jude, and James, the order is right. Hebrew, James, and Jude. <laughs> and it, the whole thing's available online. And he uh, unpacks this very, very well, indicating what's actually at heart. Uh, remember that um, the mercy is one of the parts of the law, one of the weightiest matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, as Jesus lays them out in Matthew. Uh, and, and when he says, you know, you, you should be tithing mint and rue and come in and, and these little things, but of not leaving aside the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faith. And the exhibition of mercy is one of the elements of God's law. So there can be no contradiction between mercy and law, since mercy is part of the God's law and one of the weightiest components of it. Justice, mercy, and faith. All parts of God's law. Now notice that Jesus is seeing the law of God in a very expansive way, not a narrow way. <laughs> we tend to want to narrow it down as opposed to the position taken in Psalm 119 where uh, the psalmist David says, I've seen an end to all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. In other words, it applies to everything. Far from being a narrow in his approach, it tends to be very broad. Look what Paul does with Deuteronomy 25.4 about um, the passage of not treading, you know, muzzling the ox that treadeth out the grain. He takes that and expands it. Was it set altogether for the oxen's sake or for our sake? And then he applies it. So this is the notion of that the truth of Scripture, the law of Scripture, is exceeding broad. And uh, that's why the uh, folks at the Westminster um, sem uh, Assembly were talking about the general equity concept of the law. And my view is we talk a lot about general equity, but we don't do a lot about extending general equity. In fact, we are more inclined to shrink the law of God into a dried-up, shriveled prune than to expand it into uh, fill the whole world. Because he, believe me, what the islands are waiting for, as stated in Isaiah 42.4, is not a shriveled prune, but they want to have the law in its fullness, uh, in its life-affirming fullness, because it was given unto life. Okay. Good day from Philadelphia. Hey, John. Hey, Bill asks, Martin, in light of the question regarding our submission to modern uses of language referring to gender, what significance does the term mark of the beast have for us today in our submission to civil authorities? Now, I have a particular view of the mark of the beast, and it may differ from almost everyone else's. So uh, one thing I think is distinctive about the mark of the beast is that you uh, uh, that the tie to it, uh, first off, it's in hand or the forehead, the right hand forehead, which is a, a simile, if you will, or a symbol for in thought or in deed. It's not forehead, it has to do with in thought. It's a deed, uh, it has to do with the hand, the right hand, in fact, specifically, uh, which is the, you know, that's the, that, that's the hand that uh, David says, my, my right hand be shriveled up and lose its cunning if I forget Zion, things like that. So it's the action point of a man normally, unless you're a Benjamite, which is left hand at that point. I happen to be right-handed myself. Uh, so upshot is whichever hand is your best hand, that's the hand that is where action is going to be. Uh, so it really has to do with our subjection in thought or in deed to the position that the uh, civil government trumps God's government. In other words, we would not we would not say that Christ is King of King and Lord of Lords. We would deny that, and we would elevate the uh, civil government above Christ. 
And one of the ways that we do this is monetarily, with abomination money. You see, the principle of the beast is that you cannot buy or sell if you without using the um, uh, compromised money and abomination. And that's exactly what we have. That's why we talked about it just last week. Noah Webster said that the legal tender laws are the devil in the flesh. They force you to use uh, money that the scripture regards as an abomination. You're not even supposed to have it in your person, and yet we have Federal Reserve notes. So the Christian is supposed to be working his way out of that by providing an alternative over time and rebuilding a shattered structure that's premised on the notion that you cannot buy or sell in America uh, without using the Federal Reserve note, which is an acknowledgement of the sovereignty, the lordship of the uh, civil government to proclaim value by printing it on a piece of paper, as opposed to gold and silver, which the Constitution originally said were for all debts, public and private, uh, that the government would have to accept for debts. Now that we have a paper currency, uh, we are now suckered into that whole system. So from my point of view, there's a monetary component, and we currently have the mark of the beast, and we need to get rid of it. Uh, and there are Christians who are working very, very hard, tooth and nail, uh, day and night to overthrow this system and replace it with alternate biblical currency. Mark, in his uh, message that just uh, ended before I started my talk here, in his sermon, dealt with the uh, Roman currency circulating in Judea at the time uh, that the question was posed to Christ, you know, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? And he points out that they had the uh, Hebrew currency uh, the shekels which were honest, and the temple shekel was an honest measure, it was not an abomination, as opposed to the debauched currency of the Romans, which was subject to inflation and uh, debauchery and uh, all sorts of things, not to mention it had an um, image on it, which made it an idol from another point of view. So there, too, the uh, Roman government at the time that Revelation was written was imposing exactly this. You could not buy or sell unless you're using the Roman denarius, which was an abouched currency. Uh, so it has very, very little to do with RFID chips inside your wrist and junk like that. Uh, it's a very, very different thing. So let's talk a little bit about the point here about submission to the civil government. Uh, it simply is uh, one of the ways that it controls is through the currency by fiat currency. Uh, that's why it there was a such a mass rejection of auditing the Fed. As good an idea that was uh, to say, let's, let's uh, um, open the kimono and see what's going on with our monetary system. Uh, that's the last thing they want. They don't want you to watch sausage being made. They don't want you seeing debt being monetized. And so there too is the function. But with the language issue, uh, there's a whole question whether the government should even be in the business of dealing with language. Uh, everything that government touches, this first law of politics, right? Uh, everything that government touches, it ruins. Gary North was one of the ones who first put that out that I read, and he probably picked it up from someone else. So, too, um, if you read um, my article on uh, worldview contamination, I deal with linguistics, and I talk about the um, attempts to control language at the state level and the catastrophe it brings upon languages when this happens. Uh, and one of the things that happens is that the ruling class, the elite, get a very serviceable language that is functional. And then the um, hoi polloi down here, the plebes, get a barely functional thing that just is good enough for them to uh, live out their slavery uh, without questioning things. Because we deprive them of the words uh, to express anything other than let's um, get our nose back on the grindstone. So let's see here. Buenos tardes, 
by my friend Zachary. Yes, he was Jason Jude. Uh, yes, Kevin Amundsen asked, did I get a chance to look into the genealogy differences of Matt and Luke? And my go-to uh, source on that is uh, William Hendrickson's commentary on Luke. He also deals with this question in his commentary on Matthew, and he compares the two, and he does a very interesting thing in the commentary. He uh, starts a two-sided debate between um, the one who says that Luke is providing Mary or the genealogy for Mary through Joseph and the other one through Mary. And so he has these two debating each other and attacking each other. Of course, it's, his, uh, he, there's, it's sock puppetry at this point. He's providing sock puppets for the two sides. And he's, that way he can illustrate the arguments between them and, he, and, and fill them out and explain why the two sides are at war over whose uh, genealogy is expressed there in Luke. Uh, and so at the tail end, he finally says, now where do we land, having heard both sides and having heard the best of both sides? He says, we will have to weigh... Uh, on the side that that actually is Mary's. Both of them have holes in them um, because the notion of son of is merely means descended from. And there's a question about the final verse um, which ties uh, Jesus to Heli uh, and how it should be punctuated. So there's a, there's a dispute over the punctuation of that word verse in Greek and it harmonizes very nicely um, to be Mary's uh, if the punctuation is done properly. And there's several Bible translations, as Hendrickson points out, that properly punctuate the passage and give it the correct sense that that's Mary's genealogy. So there we have it. Thank you, Ground Control. There's uh, con uh, worldview contamination, crucial case state number one, human language. So it looks like we've uh, exhausted the questions that are pending. So I'll be glad to take on any more that are available. By the way, um, Kevin, if you're interested, I can certainly uh, get you a copy of the relevant pages of the Hendrickson commentary uh, privately. If you want to PM me, I'd be glad to um, shoot a picture with my camera and get them to you. Yeah, that was an excellent sermon, by the way, wasn't it, John? I like what Mark is doing with this passage. You. And I'm glad that he went long because it's better to do justice to the material even if you uh, tamper with the clocks and push me off a little bit. I, I can tolerate that. Not a big deal. I don't have a hard stop at three. Um, ground control might. <laughs> and they always try to impose a discipline saying, well, if we go to 90 minutes, two hours, no one's going to listen to the podcast. I mean, so good point. You know, it's, it's a lot to get in when we're doing these Q&As and we offer them gratuitously. Uh, freely have we received, so freely we give of our time and our resources. Let's see if there's any other questions. Caleb, good to have you here. Up to 14 listeners or viewers. And I never know how many actually are viewing on the Chalcedon site because there's a bunch that are over there too who uh, prefer not to put more money or take more money out of Zuckerberg's <laughs> pocket than he already got uh, slammed by recently. Pretty stunning how um, uh, volatile markets are when they're f based on FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, as opposed to in a biblical scenario, there would be things would be valued at the proper valuation. They would not have massive overvaluations. Uh, that's why speculation can be a very very dangerous thing. Uh, it um, it has something of the uh, fortune teller in it, uh, and it doesn't always work well. So. Any other questions? Again, I'm going to remind folks, if you haven't signed up for our Book of the Month Club, uh, I myself just signed up yesterday, because <laughs> if I don't, I can't participate uh, as the host. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's one of the more interesting books, I think, that Dr. Rashtuni has written. Uh, most theologians stay away from it. 
on that topic. One who has not stayed away from it, and I think has done a very interesting job, is Dr. Douglas F. Kelly. Uh, his book, Creation and Change, is an excellent volume. If you don't have a copy, it should be in your library. Uh, a very studious, careful analysis. You, if you don't know, Dr. Kelly worked at Calcedon about between 1982 and 84, approximately. Uh, in so a couple of years before continuing on his trajectory, finally landing at Reformed Theological Seminary. But he certainly uh, took uh, away a lot of uh, good things from his uh, collaboration with Dr. R.J. Rashtuni in person there in Vallecito for several years. Do we have any other pending questions on our Q&A? Because I'm going to listen to Ground Control, and Ground Control tells us to go ahead and uh, shut the doors and close out shop. I have no choice. <laughs> I have to do that. So, okay, still quiet on the Western Front. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that passage, Deuteronomy 25.4, about the important point about, oh, we do have a question. It's all right, good. Would you like to elaborate a bit more on the Sadducees' resurrection that Mark mentioned in his sermon? They did not deny only a bodily resurrection, but not existence in heaven. Yeah, they were pretty much the annihilationists of their of their time. They were very much uh, rationalist in their view. They were the respectable Christians. They, the Pharisees were the fundamentalist group. They actually believed what God said. They actually thought that Moses had it right. <laughs> and, that, and so the, for all their flaws, the Pharisees had one thing right, and uh, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees poo-pooed that as nonsense. And so this is one of the big uh, dividing lines, and it is a dividing line to this day. If you have the Universalists and the Unitarians on the one side denying these uh, fundamental doctrines, and then the uh, people with a more fundamental understanding of their faith saying, no, but uh, our faith is in vain if there is no resurrection, and you know, we have to be pitied of men, etc., etc. Uh, that's exactly the position of the Unitarians and the others. They said, well, yeah, we, you are to be pitied for believing that when it's not true. And so that was the way of the Sadducee back then. They were the intellectually respectable component of Christendom at the time of Judaism. And uh, therefore, people looked up to them because they had this veneer of intellectual int superiority and rationality. And they were not going to be taken in by these ideas that the Pharisees had, a gullible Pharisees had fallen to just because Isaiah said it, or David said it, or Solomon said it. You know, the uh, Sadducee was much wiser than that. But they would have make an appeal to scriptures, and then uh, Jesus knew where to turn the screw on their reasoning. And he does it in a very, very profound way. Uh, it's an interesting argument when he says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That in a fundamental sense, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are among the alive. Are they alive? They're not fundamentally dead. They're alive. They're still with us. They still exist. And therefore, the, the resurrection of the body is a certainty. Uh, there's a reason for all these things going down the way they're going down. So... Uh, it's all well and good the way that Christ uh, deals with it. And this is the one the few times when the Pharisees loved to see Christ getting the best of somebody because Christ had made the Sadducees look bad. And this gave them, it was a feather in a cap so far as the Pharisees were concerned. Because here, the Pharisees were vindicated against the Sadducees, where the Sadducees uh, had tried to come up with this canard about you know, the old musical was Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and here it's uh, one Bride for Seven Brothers. <laughs> it's the Sadducee variation on the musical, and it didn't work very well. Okay, some of the questions are coming in. 
Would you explain how the word hate is meant in Romans 9, 13 related to Esau? Uh, well, one was loved, one was hated, and uh, this before either of them had learned uh, done right or wrong. And basically there's the whole question related to predestination, that, uh, that God creates vessels for honor and for dishonor. Uh, and God shapes the clay whichever way he wants for a different purpose. Proverbs 16.4, God creates the wicked for the day of destruction. So they serve a purpose in God's uh, economy and uh, and because they exhibit his justice as opposed to his mercy. Uh, they receive temporal mercies but not eternal mercy, and, and nor do they have any, any interest in it by that way. Uh, Rashtuni's discussion of the uh, rich um, man history uh, legend gets in the name Divas, who d died and at the same time Lazarus died, and his estate's a very, very bad estate. And as Rashtuni points out, as he analyzes the discussion be excuse me, between Abraham and the rich man, there's not a repentant bone in the rich man's body. He is just filled with hatred for God, and every question that he poses, everything he requests, is an indictment of Abraham and or God himself. Um, and Rashtuni does an excellent job of explaining why that is. And uh, people misunderstand, think, oh, here's a remorseful guy. No, <laughs> he's not remorseful. The people who end up in that state stay the way they are. Uh, so uh, related to Esau, yeah, Esau was a profane man and outside the uh, uh, mercy of God. And uh, even though he was the firstborn in one sense, it did not matter at all uh, for him. What happens, of course, is that uh, some theologians decide, well, I'm going to treat Jacob and Esau not as individuals because all of a sudden God is very personal in his dealing with us and they don't want that. They want God to deal with aggregates, collectives. And so they say they represent two different classes of people, the elect and the non-elect. And uh, therefore, there's no individual election to salvation or damnation under this scenario. It's just group if you're in the right group, you're in the good shape. If you're in the wrong group, well, you picked the wrong group to be in, and that's your fault. Uh, and so I take this apart in um, the forward to the book, The Great Christian Revolution. Dr. Rashtuni had me write the forward to it, and I decided to um, take on a book called God's Strategy in Human History, I think something like that. Uh, I give the name. And it's an Arminian book, uh, and it attempts to use this passage from the Romans 9 scenario specifically uh, to collectivize the passage and say there's no individual reference. And then I go to passage in Ezra and other to show that this is a faulty understanding. In fact, it is extremely individual, and there is no way to take that in any other way or to expand these into just a large group of individuals, just a cloud of people. Uh, that doesn't actually fly scripturally, and I do the analysis uh, in the course of doing that forward to that book. See you. There's a pinned one here. Would you stay? Uh, you said you would expand some on Deuteronomy 25:4, right? And I was, um, and now I'm trying to remember the context for it. That happens a lot on these Q and A's where I have a wonderful idea, and as I come back, circle around to it, boom, the context kind of drops out of my my position here. So, if it comes back to me, I will go ahead and grab it from my memory. Let's see here, I'm going to go ahead and close that. And, and, and I'm going to unpin that if I can. It won't let me. It's going to stay pinned forever. All right. Until I try to unpin it. Ah, there we go. 
Okay, in Matthew 12, 22-32, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the devil. Does this relate to epistemological absurdity? They deny Christ and thus the truth. Uh, of course, the response that Christ gave to them you know, is interesting insofar as uh, they know that if he's casting out demons by the finger of God, then, of course, the Messiah is upon them. So they are so intent on discrediting Christ that they're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because the uh, cleansing of a devil is the work of the Holy Spirit. If I, by the Holy Ghost, cast them out, right? But if you're attributing the work of the Holy Spirit and say that's the work of the devil, the demonic spirit, the most un impure, unholy spirit there is, and it's really the work of the Holy Spirit and you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and calling it unholy, this is where the, the their hatred for Christ is so extreme, takes the extreme form that involves blasphemy of the Spirit in this instance, and that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, and it is epistemological absurdity because Christ says, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, from one must under-ask this question, <coughs> maybe Satan as a strategy was going to say, let's fool them into thinking we're going to fight each other. Um, but Christ understands this very, very differently because uh, a king does not destroy their, their, their own, undermine their own, it's not worthwhile as a strategy. Uh, it, it's you see it mentioned in in humanistic war, but it doesn't make sense in terms of the power and the limitations placed on Satan. Um, Satan, remember, his domain is the domain of ethical disobedience. He only has power of those who are in rebellion against God. He has no power over those who are in Christ, except to try to seduce uh, seduce us and, and fake us out. And therefore, we need to stand strong. And having done all to stand, that's what all that um, military um, imagery from Ephesians 6 is all about, how to quench the fiery darts that come at us. Uh, so, it's, it's an important point. If they, they now do not do they deny Christ and the truth of Christ, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing to the Holy Spirit, uh, or rather to Satan, the work that the Holy Spirit did. So they are saying the Holy Spirit is an unholy spirit. And that's what really gets them up. They were so intent on getting rid of Christ, their hatred was so deep that it involved them in blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Oops. John Kimmel asks or says, One might think of the two thieves on the crosses, whereas Esau and Jacob, just a thought that popped in my mind. Of course, one was willing uh, and then said, You know, we deserve what we got. You know, we deserve to be hanging here, but this man has done nothing amiss. Uh, so one man is reviling Christ and the other is asking Christ, remember me when you come in your kingdom. So there's, a, there's repentance, even though it's, you know, 11th hour repentance on that man's part, but it's true repentance. And it was a comfort, I'm sure, to Christ to be able to tell him, this very day you shall be with me in paradise, which was not going to be the case for the man on the other cross on the other side. Zachary, perhaps I asked in a previous Q&A, should Christians oppose a state-mandated official language or state-initiated language standardization? Uh, yeah, I think it has been asked before, and that's, I think we actually then directed us back to that exact same article on worldview contamination, uh, dealing with state interference with language. Um, do not trust the state. Um, the state is not to be trusted with almost anything. That's why it, it is constrained in such a small, to a much small domain in Scripture. I'll have opportunity to meet with Dr. Robert Fugate when I'm in um, Pennsylvania in October. As you know, I've been published three of his articles on the uh, civil tax of Scripture, the poll tax. And uh, to this day, I think there's still a marvelous analysis 
of uh, Rashtuni's assessment, uh, that passage in Exodus, and more to the point, uh, a great defense against uh, those who attempted to undermine Dr. Rashtuni's position to declare it wrong. Uh, Gary North and James Jordan, in, in, in particular, have tried to knock it down. Uh, uh, Kevin Craig has later attempted something similar, um, but uh, I think Dr. Fugate's work still stands the test of time and is very significant because it shrinks the civil government to a very, very small size in keeping with the notion of Christian self-government. If Chalcedon is doing one thing right, it is this, it is promoting the concept of Christian self-government, the man of God being ruled by the word of God, um, being his ultimate authority. And uh, you need to understand the word of God in order to be guided by it. You know, it's not going to work to unleash a bunch of people and say, uh, have at it, and they are going to run the country with no understanding of scripture? No. And that's simply a big fat no. Uh, we need to understand it so we can apply it. You cannot apply what you don't understand, and you can not, can't understand it if you don't read it. So since uh, we have entered into a what I call a second childhood for Christendom in America, remember there was a time in the 1700s where sermons were four or five hours long, and uh, without air conditioning or heating in the winter, and people still insist that the pastor might have shorted them on their lecture on the Word of God. And the people were wise enough to be able to stand up and say, I think you got that wrong. They would challenge a pastor, and they knew the passage as well as the pastor did. We Those days are long gone, and now uh, I'm seeing on the Reformed pub on Facebook questions, what's the optimum length for a, a sermon? And is 10 minutes too long? <laughs> 20 minutes, what should the length be? So they're arguing about form versus the substance. <laughs> better five words that are understood than a thousand that aren't is what Paul says. And so lots of times we're getting a thousand words and we don't understand what God's requiring. And we tend, because of our laziness and our sloppiness, to prefer that over getting five words that we know what they mean and how to apply it. And now we're on the hook, because if we understand it, we're on the hook with God. right? The Word of God is a very dangerous thing because when you understand it, you are accountable to it. And a lot of people realize that the Word of God just breathes responsibility and uh, it doesn't leave us an out. There's no escaping God's Word. The entire universe is filled with it. Uh, Psalm 19 even talks about the speech that goes out from the heavenly bodies. Their line has gone out into all the, all the earth. And there's nothing that doesn't receive the, uh, their emanations, if you will. So, fascinating passage in my book. So, yeah, standardizing language... They can be self-standardized, but you know, uh, certain things can be done better on the free market uh, versus a controlled market in language. It is the um, it's only if you want to coerce people that you need to control language. If you uh, are in a nation that where liberty is king, then you don't have to coerce the language. It's not necessary. So the fact that folks are saying, "What do we do to coerce language?" is indicative of an ulterior motive and an agenda. And it starts there. That's why when Rushdoony wrote the article, The Strategy of Subversion, he points out uh, that language is one of the first places that the enemy starts. Uh, actually, if you consider it, uh, language was a very point in dispute in the Garden of Eden. Yea, hath God said. And then there's a kind of a faulty quotation of what God had said to Adam being uh, reiterated to Eve. So language is always being uh, used as a tool and it can be used as a tool to oppress, 
and it can be, uh, but also can liberate. Remember, the entering in of thy word bringeth light. It says so in Psalm 119, verse 130. So the word of God uh, as it, uh, does have a power that other people's words do not. Jesus even made this point. The words that I speak unto you are spirit. So they're not just vibrations in the air. Uh, they actually speak to the heart of the man and uh, can reveal what's in the heart and bring out what's the heart and motivate the heart of man. And uh, so the treasures of the heart are the treasures of the heart come all the issues of life. So the word of God is able to penetrate to what other things cannot. Any other questions coming up? And perhaps ground control can let me know how, what our timing is since I have no idea how long we've been um, beating these dead horses. Let's see. Or another question can come up. I'll take another question as easily as I'll take a time stamp from uh, ground control. Aha, time to wrap it up. Well, I love it. Okay, so remember, uh, do support Calcedon. Think of us and pray for us. Support us in your prayer ministry as well. And uh, we appreciate uh, all the support. What we do is done because you make it possible for us to do so. Uh, there's, again, Book of the Month Club coming up. And there's a Calcedon um, meetup in the, um, the Bay Area, I believe. So uh, catch up with us on the Facebook page. If you're not signed up, if you're local to that area of California, do come on down for that uh, that meetup. We have Reconstructionist meetup in Waco. We've had two of them already in Central Texas here. Uh, it's nice to see something opening up on the West Coast. And if you have plans for the Pacific Northwest or the East, by all means, uh, dig in and, and, and go so do so. So again, Book of the Month Club, August 6th. That's a week from tomorrow. Sign up if you haven't. Appreciate everyone's support. And we'll catch up with you all later. Thanks. Bye. And send your questions to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu if you want to get first on the list. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, May the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.